Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter number 2. Verses 18 through 29 is where we'll be at. The church at Thyatira. Revelation chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 18. If you're able, it stands to be honored the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse number 18. And the word of God says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works in charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye already, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. Even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this evening, and thank you once again for allowing us to come together and hear your word. And so, Father, I pray that you will bless this message. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds to be able to hear and understand and receive your word. Lord, let us walk away being... Uh, encouraged and edified, Lord, convicted, but Lord, most importantly, closer to you. Let us not leave this place the same as when we got here. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you're going to do. Bless the reading of your word. Give me the words to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Thyatira, you could say, was the church that tolerated sin. In this day and age, we hear a lot about tolerance, do we not? We hear a lot of uh, people saying that we need to be tolerant of the homosexual lifestyle and the homosexual agenda. We need to be tolerant of the great sin of our nation today, which is abortion. We need to be tolerant of those that don't hold to the same religious views as we do concerning that. We're to be tolerant of those that uh, would uh, practice the religion of Islam and uh, the things that that religion stands for. We need to be tolerant of all these different things. Well, church at Thyatira 
they would be very welcome in the world today because they were a tolerant church. They let anything go within this church as far as um, sins were concerned. So let us look this evening at the church at Thyatira and what the Lord would say to this church. Remember, these are letters that are being written directly from Jesus himself to these churches. These churches must be going and doing some great things or doing some really bad things for Jesus himself to address them. And so he addresses the church at Thyatira. And of course, like all the outlines for these seven churches, we'll see, first of all, his character. Then we'll see his commendation. Then we'll see his condemnation, his commands, and then his counsel. So first of all, his character. This is how he addresses all the churches at the very beginning of these letters to them by uh, describing himself. And he describes himself in a way in which he's uh, already been described in chapter 1. And he'll just take a few pieces from the way he's described as John sees him in chapter 1 and describes it to himself in these seven churches in different ways. So in verse number 18, we see his character revealed. He writes to the church at Thyatira and he says, These things say, and look at how he first addresses himself. And this is the only time in the book of Revelation uh, that you'll see him address himself in this fashion. The way Jesus is addressed here is as the Son of God. And he is addressing the church at Thyatira as the Son of God because he wants them to know of the hardness of their sins and the penalty that will come from it and the fact that he has the ability to judge and address these things is because he is not just some good man, not just some good prophet, but he addresses them and he lets them know that he has the ability to judge them with all that he's got because he is the Son of God. This is addressing his deity. He is the Son of God. And being the Son of God, he is equal with God. He is God is what that means. So he addresses them and he calls himself the Son of God. And addressing himself as the Son of God, he says that he is who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire. This speaks of a hard penetration through the church. Remember, we talked this morning, you can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. It's because Jesus has these piercing eyes that can see through anything. And he sees this church for what it really is. You see, you can go around, you can put on a bunch of uh, nice clothing, and you can walk around, and you can say all the good things in the world that you want to. You can do all the good things in the world that you want to. But listen, you cannot cover up your sins before a holy God. And when he addresses himself as the Son of God with piercing eyes, and then get this, listen, feet are like fine brass. Brass represents judgment. And so here he is addressing this church. He says, I am the Son of God. I have got eyes like a flame of fire. And he says, I am standing as if fine brass. He is standing in judgment over this church. And we're reminded that as the Son of God, 
He is the only one that's capable of standing judgment over a church. We oftentimes hear a phrase like this. We might drive by a building, a church building, and might not. We might think of a church as not being very active or having very many people say, "Man, that church." From what I hear, that's a dead church. Can I say this? That's not a judgment that we can really make. That's a judgment that only Jesus Christ can make. And so he is addressing this church as a judge. And he is a judge. It's not just taught in this one particular passage in Timothy, in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. When Paul writes to the uh, young preacher, he addresses him and he says in chapter 4 verse number 1, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. We drop down to verse number 8, and he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, listen, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. Jesus Christ is judge. In the book of Acts, in chapter number 10, In Acts chapter number 10, verse number 42, says, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, being Jesus, which, is, which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Jesus Christ is the only person that can truly judge anything. We as humans, we can only judge to the best of our ability. We are limited by what we can see and by what we can know. That's why in the judicial system today, there's either people being set free that are guilty of crimes, or there's people being locked up that are innocent of crime. Because we are only human and we make mistakes. Listen, there's going to come a time when Jesus Christ will judge and he will make no mistakes. Because he is a righteous and just judge. And it has been given to him by the Father to be able to judge. And so he is writing to this church. This sin-tolerating church. And he addresses them as the only true judge that can judge them. But before he judges them, before he goes and condemns them, so to speak. He does commend them. He gives them his commendation. Tells them they're doing some things right. So in verse number 19, he writes to them, he says, I know thy works. Remember, he he, uh, he seems to be addressing them just like that as far as it, it begins with the commendations are concerned. He talks about knowledge of their works, a complete knowledge of what they're doing. The word works, of course, being a general word, speaking of every good thing they're doing. He says, I know thy works. He says, I know thy charity. He's getting down into what these works are, their charity, their their love. They were a loving church. They, they loved God. At least they thought they did. They, they loved God. They loved their fellow man. And their love was known abroad. They weren't doing what they could to, to try and outswindle people or anything like that. They, they were known as a, a truly loving group. Then also says, I know thy service. 
This is meeting the needs of others, and this would go hand in hand with that love. As they would find love for their fellow man, they would look and they would try and see what they could do to meet their needs of fellow man. So they serve to the best of their ability. And this speaks of their faith as well. I know that works there, their charity, their service, their faith. Their faith in God, their faithfulness to, to God and man. And then their works, he says, their works to be the more, he says, the last to be more than the first. This speaks of their works were at the very beginning were little. And that isn't that just how it is with our Christian walk? That when we first get saved, that that we're we, we only know to do so much. But as we grow in our faith and we mature in our faith, that, that our works begin to, to grow and grow. Because we mature, don't we? If our works are the same now as they were when we first got saved, and that's been many years ago, there's something wrong with that. Our, our works and our good deeds should be growing and we should be maturing daily. But he commends them in this. He, he says, your, he says, and your charity, your love, your great, your service is remarkable. Your faith, your patience. In other words, you're persevering through all these things. Your works are growing. Your good deeds are growing. You, uh, and your, your works are maturing. So he commends them. He tells them they're doing something great. But then he drops the bomb on them and condemns them in verse 20. His character is commendation and now his condemnation. In verse number 20, he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. I can only imagine the looks on these people's faces in this church. They're being commended. Isn't that great to get commended? You know, you're always, I, was, I was always taught that if you're going to you know, give criticism to somebody, you always start with a compliment. And I can always remember whenever somebody would give criticism to me. And they would say, hey, you did great on this and, and that. And then they would say, but. And when I would hear that word, but, I would always sink down in the seat or wherever I was at and say, oh, no, here it comes. In fact, even to this day, if somebody gives me good criticism, I'm thinking to myself, they're going to just hit me in the face with something. Before long, I know it. And so that's what Jesus is doing. So, and so he, he says, you're doing great in this, notwithstanding but I've got a few things against thee. Maybe they thought, maybe they thought, well, maybe he's just going to tell us that we could always love a little bit more. You know that maybe, maybe he's going to tell us that, you know, you're not praying as much as you should. You could pray a little bit more. You always have that one spiritual person in a Bible study where you ask the question, well, if you could work on anything in your spiritual life, what would it be? Well, I just think I need to pray a little bit more. I can always stand to pray. Listen, we can always stand to pray more. We can always stand to read our Bible more. So these things aren't that bad. It's kind of what we say to make ourselves feel better. That our sins aren't always as bad as they need to be. That our sins just go as far as just needing to pray more. Read our Bible more. Study more. 
But his condemnation of the church goes a little bit deeper than that. He says, I have a few things against thee because, listen, thou sufferest. Now, you're allowing. He says, you're allowing, you're suffering that woman, Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants. Notice how he begins. He says, thou sufferest. First of all, he says, that woman. What the first thing the church in Thyatira is doing is they're disobeying the scriptural guidelines for leadership within the church. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter number 2. And he would tell him this in verse number 12. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And what this is meaning is this is uh, in connection with chapter 3, verse number 1. He says, this is a true saying. Listen, if a man desire the office of a bishop, there's many things in churches that women can do, but leadership as far as pastoral, deacons, these are reserved for men. Women can teach Bible studies and teach uh, Sunday school and, uh, and things like that. But leadership in the church is reserved for men. And so they're violating that. And when they violate that, he says, you're suffering. You're allowing this woman, Jezebel, which more than likely isn't this woman's name, but there's symbolic reference to this. There's this woman that Jesus is calling Jezebel. It says that she's calling herself a prophetess. And by the way, you can turn on and you can watch a lot of TBN and different religious television stations. And there's uh, women on there that are, are preaching, so to speak. And they will call themselves prophetesses. Even to this day, we have the same thing going on. And so this woman calls herself a prophetess and says she's teaching and seducing my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now he calls her Jezebel because this is the same thing that a woman named Jezebel was doing in the book of 1 Kings. In fact, just to read, give you a couple of verses about Jezebel in the book of 1 Kings. Chapter 16. In 1 Kings chapter number 16, verse number 30 and 31, it says, And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took a wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So she had led him to worship idols, and she would lead others to worship idols. And this woman is teaching in the church, is leading the church to uh, commit fornication, to uh, serve and worship idols, that eating things sacrificed to idols is a reference to a worshipping idols. She's possibly teaching something that was going on at this time called dualism. 
Now what dualism would teach is a philosophical idea. And it would teach that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. And in doing that, they would say God is only concerned about your spirit. And what they would do is they would say, you can do whatever you want to in the flesh because God's not concerned about the flesh. The flesh is evil. It's going to do evil, so do what you want to. It's the spirit that God is concerned about. So Jezebel and these others that would teach dualism, they would say, go do whatever you feel like you can do. Do go and, and, uh, and be sexually promiscuous. Go and, and, uh, work and, and eat the meats that have been sacrificed to idols. And God doesn't care about those things. I can remember reading an article in a magazine a while back. And it was actually people teaching something similar to this even to this day. I don't remember the how the anything that was really said in the article, but the article was about quote Christian swingers, and we all know what swingers are. If not, it they would swap uh, husbands and wives, and they were being taught that this is okay for Christians to do. They would, they would justify, they would say, it's not really cheating because both partners are in on it and are okay with it. Similar to what's going on with this. She's teaching the people, hey, it's okay to commit fornication. It's okay to do these things in the flesh because the flesh is evil anyway. So that's what she's doing. It says in verse number 21, he gave her space to repent of her fornication, but she repented not. It says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. You know, Christians are going to fall, Christians are going to stumble. Anybody that says Christians don't struggle with sin has not read their Bible. Anybody that, anybody that says that Christians cannot fall into sin or, or will not, they, they obviously haven't read the, all the many commands that, that Paul would write and others would write about taking heed to yourselves, watching yourselves, beware of yourselves. Christians will sin, but there's more of a bigger consequence for those that though you may fall into sin if but if you deliberately teach somebody to sin you better watch out look what he says in Matthew chapter 18 in Matthew chapter number 18 Verses 6 through 10. Jesus says, But whoso shall offend 
one of these little ones. And when he's doing that, he's speaking, uh, he's using children as an example, but the reference is really to children that are the people that are children spiritually. They're newborn in the faith. He says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into uh, life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. And cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Be careful what you're teaching others to do. It's okay if you do this. I remember one guy trying to get me to commit some particular sin a while back when I was uh, about 18 years old. He would say, hey, look, it's okay if you do this. After all, Jesus, he'll forgive you. And that's what they do. They try and rely on the doctrine that we as Baptists believe is so biblical that we hold dear, and that is the Perseverance of the saints, preservation of the saints. Some might call it once saved, always saved. That if we commit sin, and listen, if we do commit sin, Jesus does still forgive us of that sin. Nothing breaks the bonds of of uh, the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. But to take the, that doctrine and manipulate it. And to say you can do whatever you want to do and expect no consequences is a gross misunderstanding of the biblical doctrine of perseverance. And if somebody is teaching that, Jesus says, woe unto them. It's better if you had a millstone tied about your neck and cast them to the sea. But in all of this, we see that grace is still extended. Even though she is causing people to fall and stumble and commit fornications, eat things sacrificed to idols, it, grace is still being extended. I gave her space, it says, to repent of her fornication, but yet she repented not. And that's just how it is with a lot of people, isn't it? Grace is extended. They're committing sin and they're committing uh, all types of sin. And yet Jesus Christ in the gospel call goes out to them and says, Repent of your sins and come to me and you can find forgiveness. But yet they love their sin rather than light. And so they refuse to repent. And so because they refuse to repent, they have nothing to face but judgment. Jezebel will now face judgment. But not just her. It says, I will cast her into a bed, which would be uh, just symbolic language of, of death and hell. And not only that, though, it says, I will commit them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Not necessarily the tribulation that 
we're expecting at the end of the age, the seven years of tribulation, but some hard times. These those people that are committing adultery with her, they're going to see some hard times. Why? Because that's their chastisement. They will be chastised. They will be judged in that. But even in this, he says, except they repent of their deeds. Except they repent of their deeds. Isn't it amazing how patient God is with us? I mean, how many times have we had people that um, have done us wrong? And it's almost as soon as they do us wrong, we write them off. We don't want nothing to do with them anymore. We've already made a judgment. They're not part of our lives. But yet when God is done wrong, he says, I'll give them time to come back. I'll give them time to repent. They're still doing it. But I'm giving them one more opportunity. And if they do repent and they do come back to me, he says, I won't do what I have decided that I'm going to do. That's grace. That's mercy. And that's what God is bestowing upon Jezebel and these people that are committing adultery with her and committing these other sins in verse 23. And I will kill her children. Not real children like we think of Levi or, uh, or any other kids, but spiritual children. Her disciples, if you will. Says, I will kill her children with death. He's going to judge them and all the churches. This is the reason he does it. You say, What does God get out of judgment? He gets this. All the judgment, all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira sinned against God? They, they, they sold the property. They, they went to the apostle. They said, hey, we sold it for so much amount. But they lied about that. And so they gave whatever amount they said they'd give. But yet they would keep them back some. And it says God struck them dead. Remember what it says happened after that? It said, it said all the people were in awe. God's wrath. God's justice. Will be known. Listen. If God is not worshipped for all of his attributes, he might as well not be worshipped at all. You see, we can't just accept the, the grace of God and love of God and say that's the part that we like. And that's the part that we want to adore. Because if we leave off the wrath and justice of God, we're ignoring the holiness of God. And that God's holiness needs to be satisfied by punishing sin. And so for him to let this sin go by unpunished, his justice and his wrath would be a mockery. And so he is saying that I will judge them, and because I will judge them, he says, it will let all them know that I, Jesus Christ, am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. They will know that I am God. They will know that I am the one that they will stand before and give an account. They will know that I am the one that at the name that at my name, Jesus' name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. 
So after that, he condemns them, says if they don't repent, they will face judgment. And that goes for all mankind, by the way. If you don't repent towards Jesus Christ, you face judgment. And so he gives them a command, verses 24 and 25. It says, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, in other words, as many that have not given in and, and taken place with this Jezebel, he says, which have not known the depths of Satan. That's what uh, it says, as they speak. This was a phrase that they were using. It's almost as if they were saying that they were able, they, like they would be able to brag, that they were to, able to plunge the, the depths of Satan. In other words, to get as deep down into sin as they could, but yet remain unharmed. That's what their thought was. Because after all, the flesh is evil. We can get as deep down in sin as we want to, but yet we can still come up and worship God. And everything will be all hunky-dory. But that's not the case. So he says, those of you that have not claimed to have plunged the depths of Satan, he's all put upon you none of the burden. In other words, you've had to witness people sinning. You've had to witness the um, uh, being able to bear the uh, having to bear the witness of these false teachers and for a Christian isn't it cringeworthy that whenever we hear false teaching going on you turn on TV and you see all these people that are being led astray by, by these charlatans saying if you just send so much money you can be wealthy Maybe for them that's receiving the money. But they're charlatans and they're swindling people. And when we turn on TV, at least I know I do. Whenever I turn on TV and I see it, I cringe. And I can't help but think of all the money that of uh, family members that I know that send their money to people like this. It's a burden to be able to have to sit under that false teaching. And so he says, if you've had to endure that, he says, you're not going to face any other burden. You've endured enough. And so finally, he counsels them in verse 25. Now, in verse 25, he says, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. In other words, keep, keep persevering, keep holding on. And so he counsels them in verse 26 through 29. He says, he that overcometh. And remember, who are the overcomers? Christians, ones that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. We're more than conquerors, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. To him that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, says to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. He's referencing Psalm number 2. In Psalm number 2, David would write in He would say, verse 7 through 9, he says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Psalm 2, verse 7. 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As the ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the exact same thing that Jesus is saying that he's going to give to us. He's delegating authority. He says he shall rule them with a rod of iron in verse 27. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. Listen, even as I received of my father. So you see, we see in Psalm 2, the Father giving that rulership and that kingdom to the Son. And then we see in Revelation that as we will enter into the millennial kingdom, Jesus will delegate some of that authority to us as believers. So it closes it. Also, he says, I will give him the morning star. In Revelation chapter 22. Verse number 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify unto you these things in the churches. It says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And he tells this church here, I will give him the morning star. You know what that means? That our true inheritance will be Jesus Christ himself. To know him fully. To know him as he knows us. To receive him. He will be our gift. And in saying that. Isn't that just. What the Bible says elsewhere. For the wages of sin. Is death. But the gift of God. Is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. The true gift that has been given to the world is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is our great and greatest gift. So he closes it. To let everybody know that this is a message for this church, but it applies to all churches in every walk of life, in every generation throughout the age. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Jesus doesn't tolerate sin. That's what this message to the church is saying. Jesus does not tolerate sin. Jesus will judge sin. And it's up to us to hold fast what he has given us. It's up to us to judge ourselves, the Bible says, or else we will be judged. First Peter would write and say judgment must first begin 
with the house of God. If Jesus was to also judge this first century church, he'll judge a 21st century church as well. Let us be on guard for sin. Let us watch our lives for sin. Let us see that we are not leading others astray down a sinful path through false teaching. And be careful what we teach others. How this message has affected you, I pray tonight that you'll let the Lord work in you. Let Him be glorified. And let us be drawn closer to Him, knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that He does, can, and will judge this world. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Thank you for joining us for our broadcast. I hope you'll join us again next time with Rick Clark Ministries.